0: Hello, and welcome to the Virtual Journal Club titled, More Than Dopamine, Targeting New Mechanisms in Schizophrenia. This activity is supported in whole or in part by an educational grant from Synovian Atsuka. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Kantowitz. I'm an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, Department of Psychiatry, and I'm also at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research. And I'm the primary author, the first author, of this publication we're covering today, entitled New Developments in the Treatment of Schizophrenia, an Expert Roundtable. As you go through the document, I'll pop in here in your learning stream to offer additional insights and resources. Feel free to use the tabs at the top to take and save notes, pin any contact you might find useful, and download resources you want to save for later. Let's get started. So there's a a lot of antipsychotics out there, but most pivotal trials of current antipsychotics have only focused on acute positive symptoms. As we know, schizophrenia covers a lot more than acute positive symptoms. And the currently regulatory agency, FDA-approved antipsychotics, have poor efficacy for negative symptoms and cognitive deficits. This is despite negative symptoms and cognitive deficits being more indicative of functional disability. Many patients, when they're treated with antipsychotics, even at a full dose for adequate length of time, patients rarely achieve full remission, and full or partial treatment resistance is common. One factoid that I've always found interesting or a little bit scary and disheartening is that despite all the advances in antipsychotics, the level of recovery in schizophrenia has barely moved since the 1950s, probably even before that. We still have a long way to go before we can fully treat patients with schizophrenia even for people with schizophrenia that are lucky enough to achieve good enough effects for their symptoms often they will have pretty significant often life altering side effects these could be metabolic diabetes profound weight gain changes in their cholesterol these can be extrapyramidal side effects where patients look like they have parkinson's disease like uh, symptoms tremors stiffness akathisia which is a discomfort where people feel the need to uh, pace around uh, and sitting still is uncomfortable there's Many other side effects, even some that are relatively nuisance side effects like tiredness or anticholinergic side effects, uh, which aren't life-saving or as medically serious as the other ones I described, but can still cause considerable discomfort to the people taking it and lead to short-term and long-term harm or people just stopping their medications. The other thing about schizophrenia and a limitation on current antipsychotics is that schizophrenia is a syndrome, not necessarily a disease. And this may seem like a fine point to make, but When you're dealing with a syndrome versus a disease, you might need different treatments for different people and different symptoms. Schizophrenia almost certainly, and I'll say almost certainly because we're still working out the details on this and there's lots and lots of research needed to be done, but most likely schizophrenia has a multifactorial ideology beyond dopamine dysfunction. And this is important because all the antipsychotics that are FDA approved all work in a very similar way. They're dopamine type 2 antagonists, functional or direct antagonists. And if you think of schizophrenia as a syndrome with a multifactorial etiology, you might need different kinds of treatments. Just a couple of examples from uh, studies I've worked on, but there's plenty of other ways to subdivide schizophrenia into different biotypes. Most of the work I've been involved on is looking at sensory-based dysfunction in schizophrenia. And this isn't a universal phenomenon. Uh, and we've looked at groups of inpatients versus outpatients. And the inpatients are drawn from a chronic hospital setting. And these tend to be the more chronic patients, the uh, sicker patients. And when you look at the inpatients of this chronic setting versus typical outpatients, you tend to see a higher level of cognitive deficits in the inpatients. These cognitive deficits are tied to deficits in several different biomarkers of schizophrenia such as mismatched negativity or the ability to match two different tones that are played about a second apart, whether or not someone can tell whether these two tones, are they the same in pitch or frequency, or are they different? Even in a a task as simple as this, you see pretty profound deficits, and these deficits are much more common in the sicker population, the inpatient population, than you'll see in a group of comparable outpatients. This is despite the level of Schizophrenia symptoms, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, being about the same in both groups. It's that inpatient population tends to have these sensory deficits and cognitive deficits. And again, other groups have found similar findings in slicing up the sample in slightly different ways. Because schizophrenia is a syndrome, we need new mechanisms of action to address these full or partial treatment resistance and overlapping negative symptoms and cognitive deficits. The other thing that's important is to develop translational biomarkers, both to identify subpopulations that are more likely to respond to these new mechanisms, and also help develop new medications. One of the more exciting new mechanisms of action being developed in schizophrenia today is the muscarinic receptor agonist. The field is focused on two subtypes of the muscarinic receptor, called M1, muscarinic 1 and M4, muscarinic 4. And both of these two different receptors have been active areas of study. The field has speculated on why activating these two receptors may be helpful in schizophrenia. We've got a few graphics you could refer to. And most of the research is centered in around indirect interactions with the dopamine receptor. However, there is also interaction with glutamatergic receptors and GABAergic receptors, both of which are large groups of receptors in the brain that have been tied to schizophrenia in various different preclinical and cross-sectional studies. We've mentioned two different subtypes of the muscarinic receptors, M1 and M4. Again, the field is still learning a lot about these receptors, but as the field stands right now, there is some thought that M1 agonism may be helpful for treating schizophrenia symptoms in general, positive symptoms, possibly negative symptoms, and also treating cognitive deficits. Whereas M4, which is found more commonly in the midbrain, may be more useful for treating schizophrenia symptoms and not necessarily cognition. On the flip side, M1 is also found peripherally in the GI tract, so activating it may lead to some GI distress. There's Two compounds that I'm going to focus in on, because these are the two compounds that we have publicly available clinical trial data in using muscarinic agonists to treat schizophrenia. The first compound I'm going to discuss is the one that's furthest along. We have the most clinical trial data on it. It's called xenolamine tropium. It's actually two compounds in one. The working brand name is Carxt. is, as I said, two compounds in one. There's an which is an M1, M4 agonist, uh, plus tropium, which is a marketed drug. That's a peripheral M1 blocker. It has no direct D2 blocking activity. The tropium was added to combat peripheral M1 side effects, GI effects, hypertension, possible syncope. The data on this is pretty exciting. It goes back to 2008 where in a xenolamine-only study, significant improvement in schizophrenia symptoms was seen. However, development of xenolamine alone was delayed by pretty significant GI side effects. More recently, with the combination of xenolamine and tropium the addition of tropium rather, there's been a series of studies showing significant effects in schizophrenia symptoms. Earlier, I had mentioned that the M1 agonism may be helpful for cognition This is mostly based on preclinical studies. And while it makes theoretical sense, this has not been tested in publicly available human data. So again, it is a little bit speculative right now. There is other compound that has shown publicly available clinical data for muscarinic is emiraclidine, which was a study that was recently published. This was a phase 1B study, and I'm making that distinction because it's a bit smaller than the CARXD studies, and there's only been this one single study. So the evidence for this is a little bit smaller. However, reassuringly and kind of excitingly, the improvement versus placebo for a was highly similar to the CARXT studies. So while it hasn't been replicated as often as CARXD, the data looked very similar. In conclusion, on the Muscarenix. There's been a number of replications, which is relatively unique in schizophrenia treatment for a non-D2 antagonist. car is the compound that is furthest along and is currently under review at the FDA for potential approval within the next year or two. Another compound being studied for schizophrenia symptoms are trace amine-associated receptors, type 1, abbreviated as tar one agonism. The compound that's furthest along, or Dalaranth, it's a pretty interesting development pathway. There is literature going back to the 1970s, looking at trace amine receptors and possibly being involved in psychosis. In a completely parallel, somewhat unrelated track, a was put through um, a series of preclinical experiments, agnostically whether or not it was going to be helpful or not. And it looked like it had a similar pattern to antipsychotics on these preclinical studies. Based on that, it was decided to be developed and tested in schizophrenia. The mechanism of action, again, is unclear. The speculation is that TAR1 heterosamorizes with pre- and postsynaptic D2 receptors, which leads to the D2 receptor getting internalized and reduces presynaptic dopamine synthesis and release. So sort of an indirect way of reducing dopamine activity in the brain. The possible use of this is maybe independently as a treatment for schizophrenia. It may be an augmenting agent to current antipsychotics or potentially when it's added on to a D2 antagonist antipsychotic may be used as a lower dose or possibly have improved side effect profile. There was a lot of excitement on this compound a number of years ago, and this was based on a positive phase two study that showed a clear separation between placebo and active drug. This was followed up by a phase two open label study which showed open-label odolerant well, for 26 weeks led to continued reduction in pan symptoms. Unfortunately for the field, and unfortunately for the compound, two phase three studies that were recently publicly reported but not peer-reviewed did not significantly separate from placebo. This was a study that was conducted during the COVID pandemic, which is a possible explanation for this disappointed finding. And the Future of this compound in schizophrenia is unclear. There is one other TAR1 modulating agent, a TAR1 partial agonist, or which was also studied in, in schizophrenia. Unfortunately for the field and unfortunately for the compound, an initial uh, trial for this in schizophrenia was terminated for failing to meet its endpoint. And again, similar to a the future of the compound is unclear. A third mechanism of action that's under active study for schizophrenia research is on the serotonin system, specifically 5-HT2A. This line of research, this mechanism of action is thought to indirectly modulate both glutamate by decreasing cortical pyramidal glutamate cell firing, which can indirectly lead to reduced mesolimbic dopamine release, again, working indirectly through glutamatergic system and the dopamine system. Interestingly, this is one of the potential mechanisms of actions of clozapine. I neglected to mention in the muscarinic compounds and for TAR1 agonism that clozapine also potentially interacts with both of those receptor systems as well. Another interesting thing about 5-HT2A antagonism is that most atypical antipsychotics, second-generation antipsychotics, developed since the late 1980s, early 1990s, have 5-HT2A antagonism. For many years, it was unclear what this receptor antagonism, this feature of these antipsychotics, had to do with treatment. People would speculate whether or not it was useful for side effects or reduced extrapyramidal side effects. More recently, pure 5-HT2A antagonism drugs without concurrent D2 antagonism have been developed. And there's some hints that they may be uniquely and individually beneficial for schizophrenia symptoms, especially negative symptoms. The evidence is mixed, though. The compound in this furthest along, this is a compound called Pimavanserin, which is an inverse agonist, functionally an antagonist, that's 5 ht 2 a and also interacts with 5 ht 2 c which unclear exactly what is driving the mechanism of action. It's a drug that's approved for Parkinson's disease, psychosis. It failed for Alzheimer's disease, psychosis, and also as an antidepressant. It was tried for residual positive symptoms and also failed to separate from placebo for that. Given all these failures, you you may be wondering why we're continuing to talk about this. That's because there was a recently published study which showed a small but significant effect for negative symptoms. The effect was largest at the highest dose tested, the effect size versus placebo was approximately 0.3, which is relatively small, but noticeable. And in a field where we don't have anything FDA approved for negative symptoms may be potentially useful. There is also a second compound that has been recently understudied that is an antagonist at 5-HT2A called MIN-101 or roloperidone, It was tested several years ago as uh, a monotherapy agent for negative symptoms, which is relatively unique in negative symptom studies. Usually these compounds are tested as adjunctive treatments like pimavanserin. This initial study showed a clear separation from placebo with a relatively large effect size difference versus placebo. Unfortunately for the drug and unfortunately for the field, it failed to separate from placebo successfully on the follow-up phase three. The future of this compound is unclear. The next group of compounds we're going to study are glutamatergic compounds, glutamatergic modulation. This is a group of compounds that are dear to my heart because a lot of my own research covers them, so take them into account when you listen to what I say. The use of glutamatergic compounds is based on a series of experiments initially published in the early 1990s, in which NMDA receptor antagonists like ketamine or PCP were shown to reproduce pretty consistently the symptoms of schizophrenia, including positive, negative, and cognitive symptoms. By contrast, when a dopamine agonist, like amphetamine, is given, you primarily only see positive symptoms. So given the robust replication of schizophrenia symptoms and covering the full gamut of schizophrenia symptoms with NMDA antagonists. Treating schizophrenia with an NMDA agonist, the opposite of an antagonist, seemed like a reasonable approach. The NMDA receptor is a complicated receptor with a lot of different ligands that can modulate it. One of the most common ones is the glycine-deserine receptor which is a coagonist at the receptor and is required for activation, in addition to the primary ligand, which is glutamate. D-serine and glycine are found in the plasma and the CSF, making them potentially reasonable biomarkers, and have a series of enzymes and other compounds which modulate the levels of glycine and d-serine. And looking at the levels of these enzymes can also be a biomarker opportunity. Specifically, D-amino oxidase and a D-amino oxidase inhibitor could potentially raise the levels of D-serine, potentially being effective for schizophrenia symptoms. For glycine, one could look at a glycine transport inhibitor, which would block the removal of glycine from the synapse, effectively leaving more glycine to activate the NMDA receptor. And of all the mechanisms of action we've discussed so far, the one that's been most thoroughly studied is the NMDA receptor agonist. Unfortunately for the field, unfortunately for the individual compounds, which are too numerous to mention, until recently, most phase three studies of glomeraturgic compounds have failed. Some of this may be due to inherent difficulty in conducting clinical trials. When you do a meta-analysis and compare smaller studies, which included one or two sites looking at the improvement in negative symptoms in those studies and comparing them to the level of improvement in a multicenter study uh, with a glutamatergic compound, you get pretty similar levels of improvement, about 20 to 25% improvement a- across studies, no matter if it's in a smaller or larger multicenter study. However, when you look at the placebo effect in a smaller study versus the placebo effect in a large multicenter study, you see a huge difference where a placebo effect in multicenter studies nearly matches the improvement with the active drug. The exact interpretation of what this means is not fully elucidated. However, as one conducts a multi-center study across, let's say 30 plus sites versus a smaller study with more carefully and robustly selected patients, this could lead to a dilution of effect and increase in the placebo effect. In summary, there's still a lot to be learned about glutamate receptor agonists. While no NMDA receptor agonists or modulators have successfully passed phase three, there are two main compounds that are under active study based on successful phase two studies. The one that's furthest along currently in phase three is iclopertin, which is a glycine transport inhibitor under development for cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia, or CIS for short. As I mentioned, this is currently in phase 3, based on a successful phase 2 study in which active drug separated from placebo, again, similar to some other compounds we discussed, at a relatively small but statistically significant effect size. Although this effect size was relatively small, we do not have any FDA-approved or otherwise effective treatments for cognitive impairment and schizophrenia. Making the potential approval of a drug, even was a small effect size, an exciting development. Interestingly, there was no significant difference between drug and placebo on negative symptoms in this study, with the caveat that the subjects in this study were not preselected for predominant levels of negative symptoms. Another compound, the second compound that is under study as an NMDA receptor modulator, is Luvidaxystent which is a d-amino acid oxidase inhibitor. This compound was initially being studied for negative symptoms as a primary outcome, and it failed this on phase two. By fail, I mean the drug failed to separate from placebo for negative symptoms. However, a key secondary outcome in this phase two study was cognitive symptoms. For this, the low dose of levodaxastat was successful. Lividaxostat is currently in a second phase 2 study in an attempt to replicate this initial finding for cognitive deficits in a primary outcome. We haven't reached there yet, but we could be at the precipice of a paradigm shift of using better tolerated agents to reach previously untreated symptom domains. In the course of the CME, I've mostly talked about efficacy of these unique mechanisms of actions. Potentially equally exciting is that most of these novel mechanisms and actions do not cause the profound weight gain or the significant extrapyramidal side effects that traditional antipsychotics do. Thus, even if these compounds are just equivalent treaters of positive symptoms and don't have unique efficacy and cognition or negative symptoms, but are just safer versions of traditional antipsychotics that is still an exciting moment for the field. However, because they have unique mechanisms of action and show at least initial support slash hope for treating negative symptoms and cognitive deficits, we could have something truly unique, true game changers for the treatment of schizophrenia. An unanswered question for the field, which will be an area of research for many years to come, if and when these novel compounds are developed and released, is how to choose the right compound for the right person. I don't have any clear-cut answers for this right now, but some speculation and some potential way forward could be for the use of mechanism-specific biomarkers. For example, if glutamatergic compounds are released and widely available, one could see putting a patient with schizophrenia through uh, a biomarker assessment like mismatch negativity or tone matching, which is an electrophysiological paradigm in which we put electrodes on someone's head and record their electrical activity in their brain, primarily from their auditory cortex, while they're listening to sounds. The sounds will mostly be the same sound over and over, but every once in a while, there's a deviant tone. For example, slight difference in pitch or length of the tone, duration, or loudness of the tone, the intensity. Patients with schizophrenia have pretty profound deficits in mismatch negativity, which is their Differential response, the deviant tone versus these standard repetitive tones. These deficits on mismatch negativity are tied to cognitive deficits and negative symptoms, and have been used as potential biomarkers, especially for glutamatergic type compounds. I mentioned earlier that the most successful dose of that was the low dose, 50 milligrams. This is interesting from a biomarker perspective because a parallel study showed significant improvement on this biomarker, mismatch negativity, with low dose, but not higher dose of luvidaxastat, which exactly matched the parallel cognitive findings. Thus, the finding that low dose luvidaxastat improved mismatch negativity at the same dose that it improved cognition, whereas higher doses did not improve mismatch negativity or cognition is exciting for future drug development and supportive of using mismatch negativity or other similar biomarkers. I want to repeat, I am speculating at this point. But similar kinds of biomarkers could be developed for muscarinics, car 1 agonists or 5-HT2A antagonists. Another thing that's going to have to be thought about by clinicians if and when these compounds with novel mechanisms are released is translating the findings from a relatively refined clinical trial population with a series of well-specified inclusion criteria and translating that into the general schizophrenia market where things are much less controlled. We hope that these exciting findings will continue to hold up when put into a broader, less well-defined group of people with schizophrenia symptoms, especially when we consider that schizophrenia is not a disease, but a syndrome with lots of differences between patient to patient. This will conclude the virtual journal club activity, More Than dopamine targeting new mechanisms in schizophrenia. I hope you had fun. I had fun recording it. To receive continuing education credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation online. To view additional educational activities for healthcare professionals, please visit cmeoutfitters.com. Again, thank you for joining and providing the best care for your patients. Take care.